pastoral intern here at uh, King of Grace Church, and very happy to be with you all here to share God's Word and, and see all of your lovely faces, so very blessed for that. And now normally, uh, whenever I preach, I usually like to tell a small story and then read uh, the scripture, uh, but today I would like to read the scripture and then tell a small story. So if you would all turn to Psalm 32, give you a second to do that, that's Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule, without understanding which must be curbed with brit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The bike's wrong one. All right. <laughs> oh, I'll be back. All right. Here, do this for now. All right. Hope that wasn't important to your sermon, the part we missed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just some words in a book. <laughs> we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be right back. Excellent. Excellent. Well, hopefully everyone heard that or was able to read that in some form or fashion. Uh, and as promised, I will now tell you a little story. The year is A.D. 430. The Roman city of Hippo Regius, which is in modern-day Algeria, has been under a months-long siege by the Vandals. Now, the Vandals were a fierce warrior people from uh, Germanica, so kind of uh, Western Central Europe. And uh, they had been... Uh, fighting against the Romans for a number of years, one of several barbarian peoples who were attacking the frontier of the Roman Empire. And they had such a penchant and a reputation for destruction that even our word today, you know, fast forward 1,500 years later, vandalism comes from these people, the Vandals. Um, so they are sieging uh, this city, Hippo Regius, and undoubtedly, if they were to take the city, if they were to sack it, as it's called, um, they would absolutely destroy the city. Buildings would be burned, uh, people would be killed, uh, families would be separated, uh, looting 
uh, all this horrible uh, stuff would happen. And really, if you're in the city at that time, you're in a pretty hopeless situation with this, uh, these folks at your door. And so at this time, while this siege is going on, uh, there's a 76-year-old man uh, who is currently lying in his deathbed. Uh, this 76-year-old man, uh, his name was Augustine. He was the bishop of the city of Hippo. And if you don't know him, he's a very uh, important figure for church history. And in fact, uh, his ideas, his theology, his philosophy are foundational not only to Christianity in the West, but just Western civilization in general. Um, this is one of the uh, most important people in history. And right now he is uh, laying in his bed dying. He has contracted some type of illness. Um, and either he's going to go from that illness or the vandals are going to break through and he's going to die uh, that way. And so what does Augustine do? He has only a few days potentially to live. Um, you know, he has contributed so much to society, contributed so much to his, uh, to the history uh, of uh, our society, to his people. And what he does is told to us by his friend Pisidius, who was uh, another uh, Christian minister who stayed by his side as he died. And this is what Pisidius tells us. Accordingly, in the last illness of which he died, he set him out himself to write out the special penitential psalms of David, our current psalm, Psalm 32 being one of them, and to place them four by four against the wall, so that as he lay in bed in the day of his sickness, he could see them. And so he used to read and weep abundantly, unless his attention be should be distracted by anyone about ten days before his death, he begged us who were with him to hinder persons entering his room, except at the times when his medical attendants came to see him or meals were brought to him. This was strictly attended to, and all his time was given to prayer. So as I said, this is a situation where the barbarians are literally at the gates. Um, Augustine is again facing death, whether by illness or by the sword, and staring his own mortality in the face, but yet... Augustine would want this poem, this psalm that we've read today, plastered right in front of him so that he could read it, that he could pray through it, that he could meditate on it in the last days of his life. And that kind of raises the question, why? Why would Augustine, why would anyone who is facing their own mortality uh, want to have this psalm posted on their wall for them to pray through? Now, as we've read the psalm, you can tell that there's a lot about forgiveness in there. It talks about blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, those whom the Lord does not count iniquity against them. And I believe that that is the fundamental reason why Augustine would want this psalm and other psalms of a similar nature in front of him, is because he realized that at the end of the day, at the end of his life, there's nothing more important, nothing more sweet and satisfying and bringing of peace than knowing that you are forgiven, knowing that despite all of the failures and foibles you've made in your life, that you are accepted, that you are loved, and that you have peace with your maker. And so what we're going to discover in this psalm today is that very idea, those very things that Augustine saw as he lay on his deathbed praying through them, is we're going to see the blessing of forgiveness, how that can be attained 
how we conduct our life in light of that, and the joy that comes from a life at peace with God. And so, let us pray. Father, thank you so much for well, just the, the blessing of your word, the blessing of who you are and, and what you've done for us, God. And I just pray, uh, Lord, that these words of this psalm would be just as rich, uh, just as peace-giving, uh, joy-giving uh, as they were for, for Augustine. I pray that you would touch us each today with that. And Lord, let your word go forth and uh, proclaim your good name. And we just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we've been going through the Psalms, uh, we've noted that there are different types of Psalms. We've had uh, imprecatory Psalms, uh, so Psalms kind of praying, uh, curses, things of that nature. Uh, you have Psalms of lamentation, something's gone wrong, people are crying out to the Lord. Um, and all in all, this Psalm doesn't really fit neatly into any category. Um, you have really elements of many different Psalms. You have praise as we come towards the end. Um, you certainly have lamentation if you talk about uh, his suffering with sin, but overall, you know, the tenor is much more joyful. Um, you have wisdom in that the Lord is going to instruct David, uh, but really it's as if David just uh, put on his psalm blender, just poured in some ingredients and spat this out. Um, it just has all these different elements, but unlike what I do with the blender, which is I come out with a nasty brown puree, no matter what I put in, uh, David uh, instead uh, had a tapestry of wonderful poetic elements, wisdom, praise, lamentation, all these things coming together in a very unique uh, and wonderful passage. So with that, uh, we can dive right into the psalm itself. So first, pre-verse, uh, it says this is a mascal of David. Uh, what that means is that we know that this psalm was written by David. Um, the authorship is uh, tested to him. Uh, but as for the context of what's going on here, there's no real hints or clues. Um, all we can say is that clearly uh, there was a period of time where David had unconfessed sin. Uh, he then confessed that and uh, through that experienced joy and then wrote this psalm. So somewhere in his life this happened. And that is kind of the best we can say as to the background. But diving into the first two verses, uh, it begins with a statement stating that those who are forgiven uh, are blessed. And that word blessed, you see that in uh, Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, uh, blessed are the humble. Um, you know, that blessed, we don't really say that in kind of common parlance, but you could almost say, you know, happy is the one who does this. Happy, you know, this is a saying that a person who does this or experiences this, that is a happy state to be in. That is a good state to be in. And so saying, you know, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That sounds pretty, pretty easy. I don't really need to talk about that. You know, it's happy to be forgiven. I think everyone can agree with that. But in actuality, well, those two verses are, are very simple on the surface. Um, they actually lead to uh, some more complicated matters purely because uh, this psalm is quoted by Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 4. Uh, 
what Paul says in uh, chapter 4 is he's talking about what it means to be made righteous by faith, to be in right standing by God, not by virtue of doing good deeds, not by virtue in being um, a virtuous person, uh, but rather by having faith in God, faith that his promises are true, faith that his forgiveness is true. And so Paul, in uh, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4 of Romans, says, Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not trust, or does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he then goes on to quote these first two verses. And what's relevant here is that uh, Paul isn't just quoting these verses just to buttress his argument saying, you know, and Matia said blah, blah, blah at one point in her life and that supports my argument. He's saying very specifically that David intended and meant the exact thing that Paul is now saying. He is attributing to David the same idea that he's now developing. And so when you see that, when you see uh, someone basically saying this is what this guy said, then we really need to understand what that argument is. We need to understand uh, what's being said. And this is an instance where uh, the New Testament really illuminates the meaning, illuminates the understanding we can have of the Old Testament. And so, in brief, uh, when Paul is talking about, uh, or when David is saying this, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, um, what he's saying is that and what we're going to see in this psalm is that it's not by doing these good works, it's not by, um, you know, promising to do better and uh, getting all these good things added to your checklist that God forgives you, but it's simply by faith, placing that faith in God, that he will forgive you and confessing your sins to him. And so we're now going to see as we move to verses 3 and 4 and 5 how that develops, how that supports Paul's argument and how that illuminates uh, David's argument. And so in verses 3 and 5, uh, we see David in this state of unconfessed sin. Again, we don't know what he did. We don't know the situation that he was going through. Uh, but evidently, he had done something wrong, and he was experiencing this intense inner turmoil about it. Uh, the psalm uses physical language, you know, my bones wasted away, groaning all day long, feeling dried up. Um, and that's not to say that David was actually physically experiencing, you know, his bones just, <laughs> now they're all floppy hands or something like that. <laughs> that's not at all what's being said. But rather, um, he's using this poetic language to sort of show just how deep, just how intense this turmoil was. And we see in verse 4 that David recognizes that this is the Lord's hand upon him. God is the one who is causing this inner turmoil, who is causing his conscience to be pricked and prodded because of whatever sin he did. And so he recognizes that God is the one doing it. However, God is not doing it so he can utterly destroy David. He's not pricking his conscience to torture him. He's not trying to shove him so low and leave him there as punishment. 
what he's trying to do is to elicit confession, elicit honesty from David, that David would finally go to him and confess his sin and find forgiveness. And so in verse 5, this is exactly what we see. Verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And this is the point at which we see that whole idea of faith being the thing that credits righteousness to us as opposed to works. David has not done anything right in this situation. All we know is that he sinned. And so far with that sin, he's just tried to hide it. It says that uh, I did not cover up, um, at least in this part, which insinuates he had been covering up. Uh, he had been trying to hide his sin from God, hide himself from the consequences. But now finally, through God's prodding, he simply says, God, I'm sorry. I messed up. I, I did wrong. And rather than getting on some treadmill, some Herculean tasks that he needs to fulfill in order to earn God's forgiveness, God forgives him instantaneously. There's nothing that he needed to do, nothing that he needed to accomplish other than repenting, other than confessing his sin and asking for that forgiveness. And this is exactly the point that Paul is making later in Romans, that in order to gain forgiveness, in order to be counted as righteous by God, all you need is simple faith. Faith that when you confess your sins to God, that he is gracious, that he is good, and that he's forgiving. And that is the only ingredient necessary for that forgiveness. Again, it's not uh, having to, to run a treadmill of, of good deeds or anything like that. It is simply confessing sin and asking for that forgiveness. And so this is the point that David is making. This is the point that Paul is making. And generally speaking, um, you know, when we're in the Old Testament, definitely want to give full attention to what's being said in the particular text. You know, I don't want to start off in the text and then go and start talking to you about something completely unrelated or random. But... At this point, I do need to step away from the text just a little bit, because not only is this an instance where we find more understanding and illumination from the New Testament into the Old, but we also find what an idea that might be in a small seed form in the Old Testament is then expanded upon, is then um, enhanced by something that takes place in the New Testament. And so, that is what I'm going to do now. Basically, what David here is talking about and what Paul winds up using him for in Romans 4 is talking about forgiveness of sin and, and how that is accomplished. And he uses, again, this, this idea of crediting his righteousness. And you don't see that phrase in David. He doesn't say righteousness is credited to someone's account. You don't see that. What you do see is in verse 2, this statement, God counts no iniquity. And basically to step back and, and give an analogy of, of what is happening and what gets extant, expanded upon in the New Testament. Here in the Old Testament, and I, I work in student accounts, so I see money flying around all the time. Um, 
what Paul is saying, what David is saying here is picture someone with a negative balance. They owe money in their account. Uh, it's in the red. And that is sin. That is a debt we owe to God um, because of our sin, because of our transgression. And God graciously forgives us. And that debt goes from a negative in the red to a nice neutral zero. You are forgiven. Your slate is clean, so to speak. And that is what David is getting at, slate being clean. What happens in the New Testament, however, is we have the introduction of Jesus. And Jesus accomplishes this whole idea of wiping the slate clean. Through his death on the cross, he takes on the punishment for sin that's due us. And that's with the, the iniquity then gets counted to him. It basically gets transferred to his account. He accepts the punishment for that, and we get to go away free. That's what happens here in Psalm 32. And that is kind of the basis for our salvation is that we are then uh, forgiven. But as Paul is going to go on to discuss in Romans and what we see in the rest of the New Testament is that that's just one part of what happens in salvation. The other part is that Jesus didn't just die, but he also lived. He lived for 33 years. And in that time, he perfectly obeyed the law of God. He perfectly fulfilled all of the commandments, perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous demands of him. And what happens when we place our faith in Christ is not only does that negative, that red, go to zero, we're forgiven, but we actually get a credit to our account. All the good things that Jesus did, all of the faithfulness to God, all of the goodness uh, that he did, then gets credited to our account as if we were the ones who did it. Um, again, you go from a red and a negative, you're forgiven, you go to neutral zero, and then Christ's goodness is basically counted as if you were the one who did it, and now you're in the green. You're really far in the green, way farther than you could ever manage yourself. And that doctrine, that idea, is something called imputation. Um, just a nice, fancy, Latin-derived word for this gets put in your account, <laughs> or this gets taken out of your account, this gets put into your account. Um, and so now we, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as lawbreakers, people in the red. He doesn't see us as some neutral gray blob that we haven't done anything good or bad. But he sees us as being righteous and holy in the same way that Jesus was righteous and holy. And so without distracting too much, much from the text at hand, I think it is important to just mention how this idea um, that David develops is expanded upon and fulfilled in the New Testament. And so I think the application then for us is pretty straightforward with these two verses. You can confess your sins to God and be forgiven. So if you have sin that you haven't confessed, if you have something you've done wrong that you haven't spoken to God about, then I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to seek God because we know from the psalm, we know based on what he's told us in his word that he is going to forgive us. He is going to accept us and shower his love on us. But maybe there are some of you who have already done that. There are some of you who have already uh, confessed your sin. You've already 
uh, told God I'm sorry, and yet you still feel the pangs of guilt. You're not experiencing that blessed state that David talks about in verses 1 and 2. Uh, you still feel guilty, even though, by all accounts, God doesn't view you that way. And if we're being honest, I think we all experience that at one point or another. I know, personally, that is something I struggle with, is that remaining guilt, that feeling, you know, it's something still not right. But let me say this to you. Sometimes what we need to hear is God's word fresh to us. Sometimes we need to realize that that state of blessedness, of happiness that comes for forget from forgiveness is something we can experience. It's not something that's just pushed to the side and, well, you're forgiven, but you can be miserable for you know, however long about your sin. Um, God wants us to know that we can experience that blessed and happy state. And so if you are in that category, you have confessed your sin, you have sought the Lord, and yet you still feel that guilt, then let me assure you from God's word, you are forgiven. There's nothing else you need to do. There's no hoops you need to jump through. There's no treadmill you need to jump on. You are truly forgiven. That is gone. That is released. And better than that, you are viewed by God with that same righteousness, with that same holiness that God views Jesus, because that has been credited to your account. And so I just offer that to you, to experience that forgiveness, to believe in God's word to you, that you truly are forgiven. And for those of you who maybe have not placed your faith in Christ, there's never a bad time to do that. If this has resonated with you in any way, if you see your life and maybe it's not what you'd want it to be, then I encourage you, you too can come to Christ. You too can confess your sin and be accepted by him just as David was. And so I encourage you again to place your faith in Christ. And so at this point, we have gotten through forgiveness. We've gotten through five verses of this psalm, and looks like we can just kind of pack up and leave. You know, we've talked about forgiveness. You know, this is great. That's one little small bit. I mean, it's the biggest bit, but it's one small bit of the psalm. So you know what? We can all just get up. We can go home and enjoy our day, which we could if David didn't have more to say. And I'm so glad that he does have more to say here. You see, following David's incredible forgiveness, now as we get to verse 6 through 10, David doesn't just end his relationship with God there. He doesn't just accept his forgiveness ticket and go home and do whatever he wants. He continues in this relationship. And what we see here in verse 6 is that he calls for the godly hearers and readers of his psalm to pray to the Lord to reach out to the Lord saying, uh, surely in the rush of great waters, uh, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here, uh, David is in response to this incredible forgiveness, this incredible mercy. He is now trusting God, not just for that forgiveness, but in prayer, he's trusting that God is going to protect him through life. He's trusting God that he is going to be with him in all the troubles that he may experience. You see, that faith that we've talked about, that faith that counts one as righteous, that counts one as forgiven, doesn't just stop at the forgiveness, but it carries you through 
the rest of your life, the rest of your journey, because we continue to place faith in God. We continue to trust him that he is going to be faithful and he's going to act on our behalf. He will protect us. He will be his, our hiding place. And so we should respond with that gratitude in prayer to God. And what's beautiful about this is not only does God offer this prayer, or David offer this prayer, but we actually see in verses 8 and 9, God responds to David. God answers that prayer, though his answer may be a little different than what we may have been expecting. Uh, rather than answering, you know, yes and amen to protecting you and all these things, which he still will, of course, uh, he offers him something else as well. He offers him a promise of instruction. He offers him a promise to teach him and to be with him. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He says that he, I'm going to teach you the way you should go, and I'm going to do it in a deeply personal, deeply attentive manner. Um, I'm going to walk you in wisdom. So we've been talking about sin. We've been talking about confession and forgiveness. But now God is promising to help him to avoid that altogether promising to help him walk in wisdom, which is just walking the straight line, following God's way, following the, the good path that he set out for us. And with that comes just a slight warning or a slight uh, comment from God as well, uh, just telling David, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with brit and bridle or will not stay near you. I don't know if any of you have grown up with horses or mules or donkeys. I haven't. Uh, but from what I understand about them, uh, they're not like dogs. Seems kind of obvious, but <laughs> I can tell my dog to fetch something. And eight times out of ten, she'll go fetch it. I imagine with a horse or a donkey or what have you, that that's probably not going to happen. I can throw a frisbee and it will just watch and then go back to eating grass or something like that um <laughs> with horses with mules the the way that you actually get them to move and and obey you as long as you're riding them or using them for something like that is you have a contraption that goes in their mouth and on their face basically just to put pressure on their face you know if you want them to turn this way it'll put pressure in their mouth and on their face to go that way and they'll start going um it's not really a system of gently, hey, you know, Mr. Horse, could you perhaps go this way? It's a somewhat forceful, you know, I'm going to tug you this way and you're going to go. Um, and God is basically saying to David, please don't be like that. You know, I would much rather instruct you gently and kindly than have to put this in your mouth and kind of force you to go the way that you need to go. Um, he wants to... Uh, us to be humble and receptive to his teaching, not simply begrudgingly following him. And so God just asks, please don't do this. Don't uh, go the way of the horse and the mule. And, you know, if we look at our lives, there are times where we have probably acted that stubborn. We've acted like a mule. We've acted like a horse. And, you know, personally, I know many times where I've done that. And, and maybe this one will be a good example to think of what not to do. So back, this must have been when I was in high school, um, a, a friend in town, uh, kind of an older guy, he was moving brush out of his yard. 
and he was going to take it to a dump site and he had some other thing to attend to and he asked if I could just go to his house and I could load the brush up. He had a van. He didn't have a truck. Uh, but he asked if I could load it all up and then just dump it in the dump site. And I said, sure, I can do that. And he told me, just make sure, whatever you do, you take out all of the seats from the back of the, the van before you do it because you're not going to fit it in if you don't do that. And I said, sure, no problem. I could totally do that. So I drive to his house and I see this big brush pile. And with my expert analysis, I determine, oh yeah, I don't need to take those seats out. This is so little. I could definitely fit this all in the, just in the truck. So I get to it and after about 10 minutes, I find I fit about a third of the brush into the van and the rest is just lying out there. And I realize, oh wait, I guess I did need to take out all of those seats. So what I did is I took out just two of the seats. I thought, no, I definitely have estimated this right this time. If I just take out two of the seats, the rest of it's gonna fit. So now I take out those two seats, which becomes much harder because now there's brush all over the place and I kind of have to shimmy around and climb around to take them out. And I think, you know what, two seats are out, the two back seats, I'm golden, it's all gonna fit. So go back out, start loading the brush back up and lo and behold, it still does not all fit in the car or the van. So I think to myself, you know what, I've learned my lesson. There's two more seats sort of in the middle I'm gonna take out just one of those seats and I guarantee you with three of the four seats out, this is all gonna fit. And I think you can all see where this goes. <laughs> what wound up, what should have probably taken me, you know, 30 minutes maybe, if I had just taken all the seats out beforehand, wound up taking me an hour and a half because one, I had to load the brush, then I had to unload some of it, take out the seats and I'm very weak so they were hard and then load it back up and go through that process three times. That is not how God wants us to respond to him. <laughs> God will certainly forgive you and give you grace and guidance if you are that stubborn, but he would rather you just follow his directions initially when he gives them. And so I offer that to you. Uh, you know, God has promised to give us guidance, promised to give us um, his grace to follow him. And so I would just encourage you um, to accept that humbly, to accept that um, with a teachable spirit and to do so um, without having to be cajoled into following him and walking in his way. And so having said that, we, we come to our last uh, couple of verses. Uh, Verse 10 states, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts God. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so verse 10, which is part of this 6 through 10 section, um, you know, after saying he'll give instruction, after promising that, uh, there's then this contrast between the wicked and the one who trusts God. Um, those who persist in their sin, those who persist in this state that David experienced of unconfessed sin, all they're going to have is sorrow. Um, they might not experience that all in life now, but ultimately a life completely apart from God is by definition one of sorrow. 
And by virtue of that, that is all they can hope to experience. But for the one who, not the one who is righteous and does all the right things, not the one who dots their T's and crosses their I's, reverse of that, crosses their I's, no, crosses their T's, dots their I's, I think I said that right the first time, uh, <laughs> those aren't the ones who are surrounded by steadfast love, but the ones who trust in God. Again, it is that faith, that trusting in God, trusting now in, in the New Testament times, trusting in Jesus Christ, that is the thing that causes us to be surrounded by God's love. And so with that final contrast, David solidifies why we should follow the Lord, why we should pursue him, why we should trust him. And so then we come now to verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We have gone through forgiveness. We have gone through confession. Uh, we have seen uh, David respond in prayer and God respond with promises of wisdom and guidance. And now with all of this said and done, this is David's last word on the topic. And that last word is a word of praise and joy. In response to all of this goodness that he's experienced from God, in response to all of this goodness that has been promised to him by God, the only way he can respond is with joy. The only way he can respond is with happiness and calling others to share in that with him, uh, to praise the Lord, to thank him for what God has done, and, and to genuinely experience that happiness and that joy that comes from that. And so, again, the, the application is, is simple. It is to rejoice. It is to rejoice in the goodness of God. It is to rejoice in uh, God's forgiveness, in his wisdom, in his guidance. But if we're being honest, just looking at the world right now, this would be probably a, an understandable time to not feel joyful, to not want to rejoice. Um, just so many things have just gone awry in the past six or seven months. Um, the economy is in uh, life support in some industries. Um, we're experiencing tremendous political uh, and civil strife and conflict. Um, the disease itself has sickened millions and many thousands have unfortunately lost their lives. And so within most of our lifetimes, people sitting here, this is probably one of the worst crises to happen in the United States. And so perhaps we could be forgiven for thinking, you know what, I don't feel like rejoicing. There's no real reason to rejoice right now, given all of the horrible things that are happening. And I want you to know that God hears that, God understands, and God is gracious. But with that reality of, the, of just the difficulties going on, I would also challenge us with David the psalmist to think there actually is a reason to rejoice. And the reason to rejoice is despite all of what's going on with COVID, despite all of what's going on with the economy, with the country, these truths stay true. They don't change based on everything else happening in the world. You, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you truly are forgiven. You truly are viewed as righteous by God. And as such, God has promised to guide you. He has promised to protect you and he's promised to be with you until the end of your life and to carry you into eternity with him. 
as hard as things are right now, uh, things were just as hard uh, in years past. Thinking of Augustine from the beginning, a man living, or well, really dying, and the world around him is essentially collapsing, and yet he found joy in this because he realized that in spite of the changes and the difficulties around him, these things remain true. We are forgiven in Christ. We are beloved by Christ. And he, again, will carry us. He will guide us. He will protect us. And that is a rock-solid, indestructible hope that COVID can't touch, that civil strife can't touch, that politics can't touch. Uh, this is something that we can stake our very lives on. And so that is the reason why we can rejoice. Even, again, with everything going on, this remains true, and this remains a reason to rejoice. And so as the band, uh, if the band could come up, just reviewing again, uh, with this psalm, we have seen the goodness of God's forgiveness. We have seen how to obtain that forgiveness. We have seen... Uh, that in trusting Christ, God will continue to protect us. God will guide us and give us wisdom. And then all of these things, we can experience tremendous, real, satisfying joy. And so I pray for all of you today, um, as we go our separate ways, as we uh, continue to, to live through this crisis and this time, that we would experience that joy together and that we would continue to trust in Christ. Thank you.